Taylor, did you see this Tony Larusa thing? I mean, yeah, I've been paying attention to to baseball more than usual, so I'm uh, I'm really shocked that Larusa at 72 is even able to manage. But yeah, why don't you uh, why don't you recap what he how he put his foot in his mouth recently? Well, so uh, player for the White Sox, your main help me out with the last name. Do you Mercedes. Remember? Your main Mercedes, yes, because of the uh, the tweet about not being the first time that Larusa <laughs> mishandled Mercedes. Boom, roasted. So he hit a home run up ten runs with the Twins. Was it against the Twins on a three zero count? put in a position player to pitch yep. because they were getting their asses kicked. Willen Astudio, who's like, he looks like Bartolo Colon. He's all he does. short it and amazing. stocky. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh, it was great. Yeah. And, and, and round, round, yeah. just like he's round. round. He's a pear shaped gentleman. Rotund. Yeah. And he was inserted into the game up or down 10 runs just to get, you know, play out the string because baseball, you know, it's not like those other sports. Like you're getting your ass kicked. You can't just run out the clock. You have to get up there and, you know, throw the ball across the plate, which he did not. He was in a 3-0 <laughs> count. Mm-hmm. And then your mean Mercedes swung 3-0 and the White Sox up 10 runs and he hit a home run. Did you see and, how fast the pitch was going that he homered on? Uh, it was what, like 45 miles an hour or something like that? <laughs> yes, that's right. 46, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, um, a speed that, you know, that that wouldn't be speeding on the highway. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, that's his fastball. It, that's fine. It is what it is. So he hits a home run. He obviously like he didn't even really pimp it or anything. I mean, he did a little bit, but like the mere fact that he hit a home run in this situation was very offensive to the unwritten rules of baseball. And we've talked about unwritten rules on this show before. They're pretty dumb, but Mm -hmm. it all paled in comparison to the reaction after the game. Now, the twins were pissed. That's fine. You're losing by 10 runs. You put in a position player to pitch. I feel like you forfeited your right to get upset when the guy hits a home run, but Tony LaRusso was like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. I understand why they're upset. And we're going to punish your mean Mercedes internally. We're going we're going to handle this matter internally. But didn't stop there, did it, Taylor? No, no. He said a young player made a mistake and he was crushing him. And then there were some White Sox players that kind of got on social media and they were backing their guy and they're saying, nah, you're, you're good, Yerman. Keep swinging. Everybody's good. Lance Lynn, former Cardinal, and you would think he would have a little bit of uh, – I guess camaraderie with Tony La Russa being a former sure. Cardinal, but he comes out and he says, you know, same, same thing as other players have been saying. He said, there's nothing wrong with it. They put in a position player. And when you put in a position player, all the rules go out the window, kind of like you were saying earlier, I don't see anything wrong with it. Uh, we love home runs here and we're going to keep hitting them. And Tony La Russa then was asked about that comment. And he said, well, Lance, that, Lance has a locker and I have an office. So I'm going to go ahead and basically call my own guy an idiot and say that this was an offense to the game of baseball. And if you're out here and you don't want to respect your opponent, you don't want to respect the game, then that's the most important thing to me. And like, just sounds so out of touch and just sound, you know, there were players all over the league that then were asked about this and were coming out and they were just saying like, man, it was a 10 run game and, and the dude hit a home or like, yeah, who, who cares? Who cares at all? And then, and then to make matters worse. Oh my God. The twins throw behind Mercedes on their next game because they still got to play. One fun thing about baseball is if you get it in a dust up one game, most of the time, unless it was a series finale, you got to go out there the very next day and play. So, so they throw behind him. Mercedes kind of looks down at the dugout. Obviously it was retaliation for what happened and more unwritten rules, more unwritten rules. They're dumb. And then they go to La Russa and he's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Throw, throw behind him. Like I have no problem with it. Throw my guy, throw up my guy. Go ahead. I, I agree with them. 
I just olds, man. Like, you know, he's only 10 years older than Andy Reid. And one oh, wow. of them is, yeah, think about that. Think wow. about, think about that. Tony LaRussa at 72 years old, only 10 years older than Andy Reid. And one of them is this woke based offensive genius who relates to players who are 40 years younger than him and wears Hawaiian shirts and like yeah. makes jokes and like is as, as nice and easygoing and fun to the players. Yeah. As he's like be. making fun of Sammy Watkins and the spaceship thing, which maybe yeah. he shouldn't be given the, the <laughs> latest news, right? Like maybe <laughs> Sammy was onto something starship we'll 14, We'll get that. but man, uh, Tony LaRussa, the exact opposite of that. Welcome in to It's Always Sunny in Chiefs Kingdom, the podcast brought to you by Sports Illustrated's Arrowhead Report, si.com slash NFL slash Chiefs, or on Twitter at SI Chiefs. I'm Austin. You can find me on Twitter, as always, by my alias at Real Bird Lawyer. And here with me, as always, is my man Taylor Witt. You can find on Twitter under his real name at Taylor underscore Witt. Taylor, what's going on? I am fired up. We got a good show for the people, and uh, I'm ready to ready to talk football. Boy, do we ever! We've got first. Uh, we got some Tyron Matthew rumors brought to you by at Real Bird Lawyer NFL Insider. <laughs> Just ignited a little firestorm of controversy the other day. It's not my fault. It's Tyron's fault for tweeting stuff and then deleting it. Uh, we're going to talk about rookie minicamp. We're going to talk about the latest NFL rumors. You wrote, "Bring me Julio Jones." Yes, bring him to me on a silver platter, please. <laughs> We've got a couple of mailbag questions, and then the meat of this episode, the grand finale, we're going to return to one of our signature segments that we've been doing since episode one. If you are a new listener of the show, you should go back and listen to the very first episode. It's timeless. I to it. I haven't listened to it in a while, but I bet it holds up. I, I'm guessing it. I'm guessing it holds up. I, I got to say, I listened to our first episode maybe two weeks ago, pulling, looking for some audio for something, and we were awkward as hell for like ten minutes, and then we just hit a groove, and we haven't stopped since. Baby, it was great. We roasted John Elway in that segment, a roast that will live on forever in internet infamy. That that one's had a life well beyond the podcast. But go check that out if you're interested. We're going to roast John Gruden, coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. This roast is brought to you, in a sense, by our man, the artist chief at Corio 4 He's been requesting this for months. Corey, we finally brought it to you in all its glory, so stay tuned for the Gruden Roast at the end. But first, Taylor, news, 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 news. <laughs> so I'm waking up on Sunday morning, right? Um, I uh, I get up pretty early. Um, I, uh, I'm just used to waking up early. I have to take the dog out for a walk every morning before I go into the office, etc. Uh, so I'm up at 6.30, which is 7.30 Arrowhead time. And I come across a tweet from at show me football in my timeline. And he tweets, are we ever going to get a Tyron Matthew extension? Good question. And he didn't tag Tyron Matthew, but Tyron Matthew, as he is wants to do, was out there Googling his name, you know, mm-hmm. searching his name on Twitter. And so he just saw this random account at show me football, shout out to show me football. 
but you know, not a blue check mark or anything like that. You know, not Ian Rappaport or somebody like that. Um, just a just a fan posing a question kind of to the ether. And Tyron Matthew responds to it. <laughs> and he says, probably not. Been here before. All good. And my man Chiefict at Chiefict retweeted it into my timeline. And so here I am at 630 in the morning and this tweet just pops up on my thing saying, probably not. Been here before. All good. And I was like, fuck, I got to check on this. I got to click on this, see what this is about. So I read the tweet that he was responding to. It's like, well, this is big news. And then it pops up with a little message underneath that said, this tweet's been deleted. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, I mean, it's here right now. I still have it on my screen. I'm going to pop a screenshot on this. <laughs> I screenshotted it. I put the googly eyes on there. I reported it as news to the NFL world. It was reported by our overlord, Josh Briscoe, on SI Chiefs. It was retweeted by the main Sports Illustrated account. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of went nuts, and it was sort of the dominating news story of Sunday. And since Sunday morning, I, I, we've all just sort of like forgot about past it. it as <laughs> yeah. if nothing happened. Tyron Matthew, yeah. of course, put it out there. You know, as soon as it was retweeted, like the timing of this is significant, right? Like yep. uh, Chief Ict pops a retweet on this, right? And the second it gets retweeted, and it had 10 likes on there when it got deleted. Second it gets retweeted, though, by anybody. He's like, all right, I'm going to pop a delete on here. But you know what? It worked. It got the message out there. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, front page news all over Chiefs Kingdom, dominated the news cycle on Sunday. And Tyron, as far as I know, has said nothing about it. Like he's just I... not about his business. I saw him commenting on another thread where someone said, we want, we need you back in chief's kingdom, something to that effect. And he replied to them and he said, I tweet all the time. It's not always about the chiefs. Um, something to the effect of like, yeah, I saw I that just, tweet. Sometimes I, just I just talking. Yeah. Sometimes I just talk. Not everything that I talk about is about the chiefs. It's not all about football. You guys read too much into stuff, but this was about football. Probably not was, been here before. Yeah, like, yeah. What was, else are you talking about? It was in direct response to a question. About are we extension. ever going to get a Tyron Matthew extension? Right. Right. So this tweet Tyron was about football and I don't know. I mean, this is uh, this obviously is a significant news story because we've been talking about the possibility of a Tyron Matthew extension since the season ended, uh, really before the season ended, but certainly all through the offseason. Brett Beach has come out multiple times and said, this is a priority for us. We want to keep Tyron in Kansas City. We want to make him a chief for life, etc. Tyron Matthew, whenever he's been asked about it publicly, not on Twitter, he's said the same things like, I want to be here. He sees himself as a leader of this defense. He is a leader of this defense. So this was a, I, I don't know if disheartening is the right word, but it was certainly was a, it was certainly yeah. was an interesting news item. Yeah. He's uh, he's a much different person with a camera rolling than he is just banging out tweets. Uh, <laughs> he, really he, is. he really likes to stir the pot when it's just he, words. And yeah, then as soon as someone's going Tyron, what's going on? He says everything, right. Everything, what you want to hear, which, yeah. you know, I mean, I suppose that's fine. I, I'm sure these, these are humans that get frustrated and that want to vent and that, but, you know, at the same time, if he says something like probably not, like he's got to know that everyone's going to freak out about that. But that being said, I really do hope it was early on in the morning and he was just kind of pissed about something and just decided Dude, he loves to... to tweet like first thing in the morning. Yeah. Which a lot of us do. I also like to tweet first thing in the morning. Yeah. You but, wake you know, up with I'm thoughts in your head not, and stuff. I also don't have millions of followers. I'm not an all pro safety for the Kansas City Chiefs. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> still time. <laughs> 34 years young. I still got some good football left in me, coach. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, he likes to get on 
early in the morning, stir the pot. He loves to delete tweets. Yeah. After he puts them out there and like, okay, we know, we know you saw it. You know, that the classic viral Twitter response that people like to do. That's just him saying, shut up, bitch. Yeah. Like that, that takes yeah. long since been deleted. Sure. But we all know it happened and yeah. we all have it saved in our phones. Um, I mean, I guess the takeaway from it and everybody that was responding to my tweet, which by the way, if you're listening to this, I wasn't making any value judgments in that. Nah. Tweet. I was just reporting the news, you know, like I'm not yep. saying it is going to happen. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. Journalism I'm 101. Saying, I'm not saying it should happen. I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. All I was doing was reporting a story, just putting it out there for mass consumption. But I heard the people that responded to my tweet and wanted to give me their opinions. Their opinions were, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Chris Jones? And I do think that Chris Jones is a great comparison because yeah. Chris Jones, we thought Chris Jones wasn't going to get an extension. Like he was tweeting some some dark stuff. I mean, not yep. it was never like a direct and he would always play it off just like Tyron would like, oh, man, like I just tweet about stuff. This isn't about football. This you guys is about life. <laughs> but like he never responded to a tweet that said, are we going to get Chris Jones extension? Said, nah. <laughs> nah. I don't think so. Sorry, bro. Uh, But he did post a lot of tweets that certainly led us to believe that maybe things weren't going to work out. And then they did. And so he said stuff about like, you know, when you trust people and and things that like when you're when you've got a huge million dollar contract, multi-million dollar contract on the line, everyone's going to see every tweet in that light. But probably because every tweet's going to be written in that light. So, yeah. And and Chris came back, everything worked out, you know, um, the deal got done. And I do think that until Tyron walks out of the door for the last time and is no longer a chief, I'm always going to think that they're probably one step away from getting the deal done. They love him. He seems to be thriving in Kansas city. He seems to be playing his best football. And, you know, I also have been focused on the extension just from what it would mean for the overall chief salary cap. Like I want him extended. <laughs> here you know, we I, go. I, I want Tyron to stay here, but if they extend him and they free up a little bit of money, then they're, they're got a little chance to bring my guy in. And if they can bring Julio in with the Tyron Matthew extension, it'll be worth it. If he never plays another down for the chiefs, because Julio would make this team go 20 and up. Yeah, so Julio Jones is, I think, a $15 million cap hit. Is that correct? Yeah, 13, 13 5 or something. Yeah, yeah, close. So the Chiefs would have to free up some money uh, to be able to bring him in. If they were interested, we don't know that they are. Mm-hmm. There's not really any concrete no. rumor linking him to the Chiefs, but that's when Brett Beach is at his most dangerous. <laughs> you can't – I mean, he, he strikes without warning. Uh-huh. You, you don't know until it's a done deal or it yeah. isn't a done deal in the case of a couple of the guys that got away this offseason. I mean, we didn't know that the Chiefs were in on Juju Smith-Schuster until after he signed, re-signed with the Steelers. You know, some of the players that they were linked to, I mean, we didn't find out about until weeks later. And the Chiefs do operate in total secrecy. Uh, it certainly would require a lot of cap gymnastics. There's always money in the Mahomes contract, but, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it would be... I. I don't know about 20, you know, um, but I do. And it, it certainly would be extremely fun. I mean, they would have the best offense of all time. They have a very good defense, not a all timer, but they have a serviceable defense for sure. And you would have to have 14 guys on defense just to cover Tyreek and Travis and Julio. I mean, Tyreek, Kelsey and Julio Jones on the same field with Patrick it, Holmes throwing them. It almost doesn't matter. It's an all-star team. I mean, it that's what it is. It doesn't matter who the other players are. And a reworked offensive line. And Clyde, I mean, 
they would be completely stacked at every position on offense. It would be unfair to the defenses and it would be something that I think the experiment would be worth it. I, I know people, you know, they get all worried about what draft compensation and how much you pay him and his age. And it doesn't matter if you get Julio Jones in here, the chiefs are going to win a super bowl without losing a game book. it. Well, let's hope that happens. Cause that would be something that I would really like to see something else. You really like to see Taylor mini camp, rookie <laughs> mini camp, huh? What do you think about that sure. transition? Maybe Nailed maybe it. not as much as 20 and 0, but yeah, minicamp's fun. It's another step. Yeah, minicamp's fun. Maybe not as fun as Julio Jones catching touchdowns from Patrick Mahomes, you know, out there on the field with Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey and Clyde Edwards Hilaire. But minicamp was fun. Rookies, UDFAs, tryout players, no hitting. Hitting's not my thing, coach. Nice. They're not allowed to hit, but they are allowed to go out, learn the playbook, get out uh, and do a little work, work through the playbook. This is their first time, first opportunity to get their hands on the playbook. Some items of note, Nick Bolton, the Chiefs' first pick in this class, got an interception. He was asked about kind of his role, did indicate he is going to have a role on special teams this year. So you got to think that if they're planning on him eventually playing, you know, major full-time starter snaps, that he will, you know, maybe transition and gradually to that role. It doesn't sound like they're planning on him taking, you know, 75% of the snaps in week one, but he uh, certainly indicated that he would be willing to play on special teams, bring some value there. Lucas Niang was in attendance after opting out last year, Chiefs third round picks last year. Andy Reid gave this fascinating <laughs> quote, a big man that has these beautiful feet. <laughs> beautiful feet is how Andy described Lucas Niang. He said he's looked tremendous, uh, which is not necessarily uh, in conformity with some of Chiefs Twitter because right. he looked fat and he actually does look, he does look pretty fat. Uh, but Andy Reed says that you can tell that he's worked. And I think Andy Reed probably knows more about offensive line play than I do. So certainly you know, I will trust his, uh, his judgment there. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when he says he looks tremendous, that's the type of Andy speak that goes above and beyond what he has to do. You know, sure. he, he, he has to say stuff like, um, you can tell he's worked and, and we're excited about him and stuff like that. He goes further and says he looks tremendous. That to me means Andy believes it. He's not just out here saying coach speech. He's saying, I'm impressed with the kid and yeah. that's all I need. Well, hopefully that works out well for the chiefs. Uh, he certainly, I mean, he, he's had a year to redshirt. essentially. We've kind of openly speculated about you know, how much contact he's been able to have with the team since he opted out, you know, whether he's able to work through a playbook, but you got to think that he's at least spent some time learning the system. And hopefully that translates to the field because he certainly has an opportunity to come in and start right away. If he can kind of prove that he's up to the task, uh, the chiefs did sign a player from tryouts in this uh, little mini camp session that they had over the past weekend, Doris fountain, a wide receiver from Northern Iowa. Had you ever heard of Doris fountain before? Um, I hadn't, Be I honest. love that. I hadn't, I love that his last name is fountain city of fountains. Yeah. I think oh, that's great. super fun. And when I looked him up, I guess the Colts were pretty fired up about him when they first, um, drafted him and then the injuries and stuff, he didn't, didn't really work out, but yeah, I think, uh, I think he's a fun, fun pick. Yeah. He was a former fifth round pick of the Colts in 2018, again, out of Northern Iowa. So not exactly a, a football powerhouse necessarily there. Uh, he has six, Games played in his NFL career, primarily on special teams. Three total NFL targets since 2018. Two receptions, 23 yards, 
in three seasons. He did miss all of that 2019 season with an injury, as you kind of mentioned. He does have a good athletic profile. So six foot one, 206 pounds. His overall relative athletic score an 8.0, which means he's in the 80th percentile as an athlete for wide receivers, which obviously is, you know, that's compared to other wide receivers. It's a high so bar. We're talking about a, a high bar, uh, obviously a, a high athletic position. So his his composite explosion score, which is is based on his vertical and his broad jump, insane. So 99.5 percentile vertical jump. So that means he had a higher, better vertical jump than 99.5 percent of wide receivers of you know comparable kind of build and then 99.2 percent in the broad jump so better than 99.2 percent of other wide receivers in terms of broad jump so i read in 2018 that he was not invited to um the the combine the combine thank you uh (laughs) but his numbers in the broad jump and vertical jump would have been number one in both categories in the 2018 combine had he been testing with all the other players that's impressive. And he also ran a 4.5, yard dash, which isn't a world beating, but it is in the 69th percentile. Nice. Very nice. Thank you. Average agility. Uh, the Chiefs did waive Tajay Sharp, who's been with the team for a little while. I think we signed him last year. Uh, you know, former Titan guy who had some more NFL experience than Doris Fountain. So that seems like a kind of a one for one replacement move there. They liked what Doris Fountain was showing them in a weekend than what Tajay Sharp had been showing them in several months of the team. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. RIP Tajay Sharp's NFL career, but uh, is uh-huh. certainly an intriguing player in Doris Fountain. Then in other news, the Chiefs began their workouts this week. Uh, per Herbie Tiope, the Chiefs had 81 players in attendance on Monday. This is a 90-man roster at this point in the season. We didn't get specifics about who was there, who might have missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for perspective, we've got a 90-man roster here. Chiefs had 81 in attendance. The Jets, I read, were reported to have over 80. Uh, the Broncos were reported to have around 75. The Dolphins were reported to have over 70. The Giants were reported to have over 40. Over 40? Over 40 is how it was phrased in the reporting well, that I read. So, I you mean, know, the Chiefs over had 40, over 42. They did. And, and over 40 is less than half of the players on the Giants roster. So I'm not sure what's going on there. Yes. Uh, we obviously have talked about the, the ongoing story this offseason of the NFLPA kind of urging players to boycott these mandatory or not mandatory. These are voluntary workouts right. and it hasn't worked. I, I mean, all the rookies showed up to minicamp, uh, pretty much all the players, except for the giants, apparently showed right. up for workouts this week. And so, you know, I mean, it seems like the players are getting in the building. I got to imagine the Juwan James situation that happened with the Broncos has probably scared the players a little bit. And, and Deshaun back- Hamilton. And Deshaun Hamilton as well, working out away from the team, also cut, also a Bronco. Yeah, tough scene. You hate to see it. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was very interesting. They, you know, James got hurt. They cut him. Deshaun Hamilton gets hurt. They cut him. Both of them were serious enough that they were going to be, you know, going to miss the rest of the season. Um, and the NFL or the Broncos are trying to claim that it was a non-football injury, and it is football related, but it wasn't in team facilities. So that's kind of, that's where the whole drama comes in with, you know, well, if, if you guys aren't going to insure us when we're voluntarily working out, then like, screw you guys. Yeah. I mean, I get where the players are coming in from, but they probably should have negotiated this uh, yeah. a year ago when they yeah. signed a new collective bargaining agreement they should that have. runs for 10 years. So mm-hmm. I don't know, probably should have thought about that guys. A uh, little bit of news today, McCole Hardman 
raced, and I'm putting that in air quotes, not because Dove Clayman, independent NFL reporter extraordinaire, which I definitely am putting in air quotes, reported it that way. They did sort of like a virtual race. They all they weren't all in the same location yeah. racing against each other, but they did a 40-yard dash. Who did? Cole Hardman yeah. raced Henry Ruggs, wide receiver for the Raiders, Devin White, linebacker for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Ooh. and Justin Jefferson, wide receiver for the Vikings. So they essentially had a virtual race. They all ran a 40-yard dash, and they compared their times. Now, these were hand-timed 40-yard dashes. Uh, people have claimed shenanigans about you know the Chiefs guy because he ran the fastest. McColl ran a hand-timed 4.22 40-yard dash. Oh, blazing. Blazing hot. One handily over Henry Ruggs, who ran a hand-timed 4.26. Handily. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're talking almost half a second there. 4.22 no. to 4.26. No, we're I talking mean, not, about five hundredths a of a second. Five hundredths of a second. That's still significant. We're talking about five hundredths of a second, man. That's uh, you know, that's a couple steps. Uh, that's Devin not won- a couple steps. That's oh, like boom boom. I oh, mean, no, that is. Oh no, it it definitely is a couple steps. Four two two to four two six. Yeah. Oh, it for sure is. It's at least a step. Uh, Devin White. <laughs> it is. No. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. All right. Uh, Devin Wright White ran a four point three seven. Yeah. Which as is, a linebacker. Uh, extremely. As a linebacker. Yeah. I mean, he's you know he's he's big. He's fast. He, he can had fifty pounds on the goal. He can run fast in a straight line. Good for him. And Justin Jefferson, who is by far the best player on this list. Yeah. Ran a four point five. So you know, I mean what can you say about 40 times they're cool and they're interesting, but this list is probably in reverse order of actual goodness as NFL players. <laughs> I guess you can make yeah. an argument with rugs and Hardman. Uh, sure. You know, rugs, rugs tied bad last year. We're going to talk about that during the Gruden roast spoiler alert, mm-hmm. but Justin Jefferson was amazing last year. And Devin white has had a very good start to his NFL career as well. Uh, any takeaway other than it was fun. Yeah. My takeaway is that you think 0.04 seconds is a couple steps. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, maybe not a couple, maybe, maybe a it's step. not even one. It's, it's boom, definitely, boom. It's definitely, I mean, it's as, it's as you can't even time 0.04 seconds. It's definitely, well, you can because they did it. Well, I, I mean, mean, you no. can't manually. That's fine. That's fine. I think that's hilarious you mean I and you're can't, way wrong, but you mean okay. I can't do it in my head, but if yes. I was working a stopwatch, I absolutely could. Yeah, listen. You it, can't even start and stop a stopwatch in point oh four. Yeah, listen, move past it. We absolutely, <laughs> we absolutely, we absolutely could start and stop a stopwatch in point oh four seconds. We could do it. We'll try. Uh, we could do it. it. It's definitely doable. You want to get into this mailbag? Mailbag. Mailbag. So we got one from Jordan Scarin. Kaka, kaka. Question for the pod: Raiders nightclub in the end zone, yay or nay? Also, if you could do a celebration in the nightclub, either as a Raider or a Chief, what would you do? So for those of you who are not in the know, the Raiders are going to be, you know, they're going to have their stadium filled up this year, at Legion Stadium, the Death Star in Las Vegas. Uh, they had no fans l- last year. They are going to be at capacity this year. The tickets are bonkers. They're going for like Ugh. minimum ticket for all these games is like 550 bucks or something like that. They have a nightclub in the end zone and all we've seen so far, I think it was like an artist rendering. I don't, I don't know yeah. if this nightclub actually exists yet in yeah. nature, but they do have a plan for a nightclub. And so I don't know, yay or nay. What, what do you think about this? Oh, yay. I mean, for sure. Yay. First of all, from both fans sides perspectives from the home team 
look, they're going to need a lot of distractions. It's going to get ugly on the field. They're not going to want to be watching football. And if you can go get hammered at a nightclub without having to leave the stadium, like they're going to do that. That nightclub is going to be slam packed and especially in blowouts. And number two, as an away fan, I mean, you know, what more fun if you're going to go in there instead of dealing with like Raiders fans all over the place and all the scum that's going to be, no, you just want to go chill in a club, watch your team spank them. Uh, yeah, I, I like it from both perspectives and it's Vegas and Vegas is obviously known for having a good time. I'm a hundred percent about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good idea. I agree that it's very much a distraction and that those will be necessary and yeah. needed. So I completely understand why they put it in the second part of this question if you could do a celebration in the nightclub either as a raider or chief what would you do now i have to preface this by saying it has been a long time since i've set foot in any kind of nightclub Hmm. not just because of covid although that certainly is part of it even if i had wanted to go to a nightclub in the last year or so that would not really have been possible but you know i'm in my i'm in my 30s that that part of my life i've never been a big nightclub guy (laughs) to be honest with you, but sure. that part of my life where I, I may have been tempted to do that, uh, it's kind of past. But if I were going to do a celebration, boy, I mean, I can't wait for one of the chiefs, Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey gets in there and does a sick dance after he, he does a touchdown. He just jumps into the nightclub and does, you know, one of his moves, Same you know, he does the, does the move in the nightclub. I mean, uh-huh. pff, I uh... all flustered just thinking about it. <laughs> I would want to make it rain for sure. I mean, oh, that's good. just turn it into like a strip club celebration and just sure. get, get in the end zone and start pass, passing your ones out. And uh, I think that would be fun and classy. I'm sure Raj would love that. So yeah, uh, I can't believe that Roger Goodell signed off on this. I can't either. I mean, it's obviously going to be a pretty tame nightclub. I mean, it pretty much yeah. has to be by definition. Yeah. Don't think there's going to be any ladies of the night or, uh, <laughs> or strippers uh, working this nightclub, but there might be, who knows? There, there certainly will be right outside the stadium. <laughs> yeah, well, there, sure. there will be. Yeah, there will be. Uh, we got one here from unknown caller at original GMF. Mailbag content. How would the NFL change if we eliminated the penalty for O-line blocking downfield on pass plays? Well, I mean, for one thing, you would want to have a lot of athletic linemen who can mm-hmm. go down the field and block. And I think, you would see teams like the chiefs take full advantage of it because they love to have their athletic linemen that can move, get out in space, you know, block at the second level. Um, you know, a guy like Creed Humphrey, man, he would eat, It'd be incre- incredible. I mean, literally the most athletic center of all time in the history of athletic testing, <laughs> getting downfield and making some blocks. I mean, it'd yeah. be hilarious. I, I don't, I mean, obviously they're not going to do it, but well, I, I think it I'd would, love to see it. I think it would break defenses. So the yeah. whole reason that they have to contain the linemen on passing plays is because if they let him get downfield, it's it's unstoppable. They can yeah. they can block in front of a wide receiver and then they can set up like a screen 15 yards down the field where sure. they have two linemen in front of it. I mean, it would be amazing, but it would be impossible to defend. It would it would turn games into who has the ball last. I mean, I just think that the reason that they're held back is worth not letting him go. Uh, but I would love to see it for fun or in a college game or something that doesn't matter because I think it's a great concept, but it, the NFL would never do it because it would break the game. This next one is for you, Taylor. Yes. Dildo Baggins, who I so appreciate at Dildo Baggins 757. Uh, I'll give you a caca. We, we, we interact. Caca! Caca! 
Uh, he says, mailbag question regarding the recently, recently released UFO footage from the Navy. Why is this topic still so overlooked? And what do you think about the theory that UFOs are, for, are us from the future rather than some alien species from another star or another galaxy? I find the former explanation pretty mind-blowing, but still the most practical. Thank you for the question, Dildo. I obviously uh, love the the UFO and the alien you know, part of, I, I'm fascinated by it too. Um, I do think that it makes sense if us from the future, we would know where we are in, you know, we would know that if we're going to go back, we want to go, go back and check out earth because we knew what was going on here. So it kind of gives us like a reason that they're visiting because they already knew we were here. Um, but I am in agreement with Einstein that I don't think time travel backwards is possible. So I don't think it's us from the future because I don't think time travel in reverse is physically within the laws of nature. Uh, however, I do have a new theory on where these UFOs are coming from. That oh, I've, okay. It's been, I think they could be coming from under the sea. And I say that for a couple reasons. Number one, we have not found, we haven't uh, explored under our sea. We've, we've explored something like 10% of the ocean floor and maybe even not even that. And the, there was this video that the Navy released that he's talking about. One of them was a circular UFO. Navy ships are spotting it. It's hovering around. It's doing its UFO stuff. And then, boom, it splashes. It goes down, never comes back up. They dive. They send a submarine after it. They look for wreckage. They look for whatever it was. And there's not a single trace of this object to be found anywhere. And, you know, obviously it could have done, it could have gone into another dimension or time traveled or whatever. But I think it's theoretically possible that they, the reason that the Navy sees them a lot and that they're flying above water, almost all the videos we've seen are water sightings above water. And it could be because they all live down there and they all pop up and check out what's going on. And then as soon as they see us, they pop down below. Well, that's because, Taylor, the earth is covered in water. Earth and water, water and earth, it's water. <laughs> it's, so it's water. it makes sense that UFOs would be spotted over water. Like 70% of the earth's surface is water. I, sure. I understand where you're coming from, but what would they be? They'd be aliens that are living no, in our ocean. Not aliens. They would have been, they would have evolved on Earth just like us, but we just never would have talked to each other or seen each other. So, so these Earth sea dwellers, uh-huh. like this race of Neptune mermaid people, sure, like Atlantis like or whatever, yeah, superior flight technology than us. That doesn't make any sense. They live underwater. Like, yeah, they're, they're why doesn't that make sense? can zoom into the sky 80,000 feet in the sky and then drop yep. in a second that doesn't make any sense why, why would they have developed that technology they why would it make sense that we would have developed it before them how how do we have because an advantage we developing technology that they on don't on the surface and we access the sky on a regular basis whereas they do not they access the water on a regular basis they probably just but, developed watercraft and then they drove them straight up high enough and they're like oh shit that doesn't make sense. Doesn't I mean, make we sense. can get That's... up into space and we're not up in space all the time, but we can fly around in space. Well, we can, but the, the technology that we use to get into space is completely different from the technology that we use to move around the water. I just, and I, that could I, be the same for these guys. They could have sent their, yeah. their above water ship up. I, I like it. I'm, I'm going with it. That's my favorite. I, I'm interested to see the, the media that develops as a result of the latest round of UFO stuff, like the pop culture that comes out of this. I'm very mm -hmm. enthralled for that. Mm -hmm. I'm very into alien movies and songs and, you know, <laughs> stories and things like that. I think sure. that will be exciting to see what direction people take with it. You know, a lot of it has just been recycling tropes from the, the heady days of, you know, Roswell and 1960s and all that stuff. And so I'm excited to get some new content to inspire our science fiction writers, but 
We'll see. I don't know. Aliens that live at the bottom of the sea. Hmm. I don't they're, know. They're not aliens. Oh, okay. Earth <laughs> people that live at the bottom of the sea that That's have right. alien technology. That's right. Okay. Well, we'll see. Well, Taylor, that brings us to our final segment, the roast. And we are going to be ro- roasting John Gruden. And I already shouted him out, but another shout out to our man, Corey 4 who did a piece for Arrowhead guys a couple of years ago that sort of inspired this roast request. He asked us to roast John Gruden, but Corey kind of laid the groundwork a little bit because he already roasted John Gruden. Feel free to go Google that article. Check it out. Yeah, it's a great Arrowhead guys piece. Um, Something that I thought was funny that he points out is that John Gruden only has five division titles in his 15 year coaching career. And two of those came with regular season win totals of only nine and 10 games. So like, Gruden sucks at coaching. He's a total weirdo, and we will now go into all that in more detail. We are going to build off of Corey's article. That's a jumping off point for us. And we are going to dive into an excruciatingly detailed and thorough (laughs) roast of John Gruden. So I want to begin with a little biographical data, if you will indulge me. I will. John Gruden was born in 1963, which officially makes him a boomer. (laughs) in Sandusky, Ohio, to a family of Slovenian descent. And you may not know this, but John's dad, Jim, was a big football guy, longtime football guy, okay? He worked his way up uh, from coaching high school football in Ohio to eventually, uh, I think he spent some time in the college ranks, and then he got a gig in the NFL, serving as the running backs coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, future franchise of John Gruden, his son. From 1982 to 1983, he was the running backs coach of the Buccaneers. And then he sort of pulled like a reverse Ruben Amaro situation here. Where <laughs> he went that. from the sidelines to the front office <laughs> and he went from coaching football to being an executive. He was the director of player personnel from 1984 to 1988. And so what you need to know about Jim Gruden, John's father, who taught him everything he knows about football, is that he sucked <laughs> At both of those jobs. You're not just getting a roast to John Gruden here. You're also getting a roast to Jim Gruden, his dad. And Jay Gruden sucks too. Jay Gruden sucks too. Although actually, I think Jay Gruden might be the most talented yeah. Gruden. I, I don't know. Low uh, bar. It is a low bar. But um, he actually, one of his brothers is like a doctor at yeah. an Ivy League university. So actually, I think that Gruden is probably the, <laughs> the most successful Gruden in his profession. He's a doctor at Cornell. <laughs> Uh, In 1982, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers finished 19th of 28 teams in rushing yards per attempt. So that's not good. It's in the bottom half. 14th would be average. They were 19th. That was Jim Gruden's first year as running backs coach of the Buccaneers. And then in 1983, they finished 28th out of 28 teams. So the running backs that he was coaching were (laughs) the worst running backs in the entire NFL. And then he did his reverse Ruben Amaro situation and he went from the sideline to the front office and he became director of player personnel. And so during his tenure at that position, the Buccaneers uh, fueled by his scouts and his, his input on draft picks went 19 and 60 uh, oh. during his time as director of player personnel. And the reason there's an odd number there is because there was a, a strike in 1987. I didn't sure. tabulate that wrong. There sure. just, there were fewer games. I, I added that up and I was like that, that can't be right. And then I, you know, I Googled it and yeah. So there was a strike year in 1987. That's why Jim then went on to work for the 49ers as a regional scout. So he literally went from like running the scouting department in Tampa to being a guy 
scouting for the 49ers. Knock on wood for disappointing career paths. <laughs> knock, knock, knock. So meanwhile, John was back in Ohio. He was attending the University of Dayton, which obviously is a football powerhouse. Uh, to underscore how much of a football powerhouse the University of Dayton is, in 2020, the Saints drafted tight end Adam Troutman out of Dayton, and he was the first Dayton player to be drafted into the NFL since 1977. What, drafted in the first round? Uh, no, drafted, period, oh, at all. Getting a job round. in the – oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, yep, uh... to be drafted in the NFL. Yep, yep, to be drafted in the NFL. So he was the first player to be drafted in the NFL out of Dayton in 53 years. So John Gruden, that obviously means he, he was not drafted. Uh, he actually – he wasn't even starting for the Dayton Flyers. So he transferred to Dayton to play football, mm. and he couldn't crack the starting lineup. So he was a quarterback – just like his brother, Jay, who actually did play in the arena football league. You know, he had, yeah. he had a decent career in the arena football league. John Gruden was the backup quarterback. And who was he backing up for the 1982 to 1984 Dayton Flyers? We don't know because <laughs> I can't find any information about who played for the Dayton Flyers in the 1980s on Google. It doesn't exist <laughs> because the Dayton Flyers were not ever relevant. They were not an interesting football team. They were a division three school that kind of sucked at football. And the starting quarterback of that team is lost to history, but he was better than John Gruden. So there you go. So after failing to crack the starting lineup as a quarterback for a D three college team that he transferred to, to try and, you know, play quarterback, mm. he got into coaching because, you know, those who can't do teach, right? <laughs> nice. So he got a communications degree at Dayton. He coached, uh, he coached, he coached around Tennessee, Southeast Missouri State, University of the Pacific. And then finally, he got his big break as an offensive assistant in 1990 with who else? But the team that his dad was working for, the San Francisco 49ers. Knock on wood for nepotism. So after one year as the wide receivers coach for the University of Pittsburgh, where he landed after spending a year with the 49ers. He couldn't stick on his dad's team. No, he couldn't stick on his dad's team. He spent a year there. Then he went and worked as a wide receivers coach for the university of Pittsburgh in 1992. He lands with Mike Holmgren's green Bay Packers as an offensive assistant slash quality control coach in 1992. Now you probably have heard about this 1992 green Bay Packers team. You probably have seen the photo of young Andy Reed Mm -hmm. along with John Gruden this coaching staff was notable because in addition to John Gruden, it also featured quarterback coach Steve Mariucci, who went on to coach the 49ers and the Lions uh, to a 72-67 career record for him. He actually went 57-39. and 39. Very good record with the 49ers yeah, yep. and won several playoff games. Uh, not a great sit with the Lions in the early 2000s, but then again, who is good <laughs> with the Lions? Right. And the assistant offensive line coach slash tight ends coach, Andrew Reed. And somehow out of these three guys, I don't understand how this happened, but John Gruden is the first of these coaches to graduate to a full-time offensive coordinator gig. I don't know mm-hmm. how it happened, yeah, but Andy Reed, Steve Mariucci, busting their balls, coaching the quarterbacks, coaching the tight ends, John Gruden, the assistant offensive line coach makes it, or the offensive assistant slash quality control coach. He becomes the offensive coordinator of the Philadelphia Eagles in 1995. Go birds. Gilberts, the 1994 Eagles before John Gruden arrived were a pretty decent offense. Okay. They were, they were average. They were 17th out of 28 in points per game. They were 14th in yards. So exactly middle of the pack in John Gruden's first year as offensive coordinator with 
pretty much the same personnel. They went from 17th in points per game to 21st. So dropped five spots in yards. They went from 14th to 25th in the league. Oh no. 25th out of 28. In oh no. Offensive yards per game. So in 1997, and or in 1996 and 1997, they jumped back up to fourth and then fifth in yards and ninth and 19th in points. So big offensive explosion. They basically got back to the where they were the year before John Green right. joined the team. He broke and it and then fixed what he broke. That's right. He broke it and then he he fixed it back to the state that it was. He did not improve it no. really in any measurable capacity, but that was good enough for Al Davis. Knock on wood for massive mistakes made by Al Davis. So where did he go from there, Taylor? He went to the silver and black, the pride of Oakland, California, the Raiders. And so Gruden starts things off in Oakland in a very Gruden way. He brings his expertise and his offensive know-how that Al Davis loved to the tune of two straight eight and eight years. So mm-hmm. in uh, so he starts off and, you know, the thing about eight and eight, that's not good enough for the playoffs but it's not bad enough for a good draft pick. It's basically purgatory. It's the worst possible result, in my opinion, for a season. Although it should be stated, and we'll get into this in more detail later, having a good draft pick doesn't mean anything. In <laughs> well, so I just want to point that out. <laughs> that's true. The eight and eight finishes a, a big picture football take there. But listen, uh, he's, he's drafting the guy who's ranked 50th on the consensus draft board, no matter if he's picking fourth or 17th, doesn't matter. That's exactly right. So then after a couple of eight and eight years, he lucks into the uh, chiefs, former backup quarterback and career revival of rich Gannon. So rich comes in and he's extremely good and things kind of start to take off for old John. He's getting some success he's got 12 wins in his first year with with gannon and then 10 years 10 wins the next year but when it comes to playoffs they get absolutely clowned by ray lewis's ravens in the afc title game their, their first year 16 to 3 that ravens team went on to win the super bowl they were extremely good but oakland couldn't get anything going against them in the title game and then the infamous tuck rule game in the divisional round against the patriots where Tom Brady fumbles the ball and the referees save him for the first time of the next 20 years of his career, basically. After that game, that offseason, in a move that we have covered on previous podcasts, John Gruden was traded to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he was traded for multiple first-round picks. The Buccaneers (laughs) said that guy that just won 12 games, 10, 10 games, and lost to the Patriots in the divisional round, we want to trade multiple first round picks to get him to coach our football team. It's one of the more absurd transactions in NFL history, not as absurd as the, uh, the NFL CFL trade that we talked about a couple weeks ago, but very absurd, very absurd. Multiple first round picks getting traded for John Gruden. But you have to understand the context of where Tampa was coming from in this situation. So Tampa in 2001, had a good year. They finished nine and seven. They made the playoffs. They lost in the wild card to Andy Reid's Eagles. Go birds. Go birds. <laughs> but they were 15th in offensive points per game, 20.3 points per game, middle of the pack, eighth in points uh, per game allowed, 17.5 points per game allowed. Really good defensive team. Mm-hmm. Some great players on that team. Warren Sapp, Tony Dungy coaching those guys up on defense. He was fired. He went nine and seven. Ownership said, that's not good enough. It's one of the better seasons in Bucks history, but it's not good enough. We want to trade multiple first round picks for John Gruden. Now, the, and, 
the trade. It happened. The thing you got to understand about this trade. So Tampa was looking for their coach, but it took forever after they fired Dungey. They were they were sitting through the offseason. They really wanted to get somebody in, and they called the Raiders about Gruden, and Al Davis refused to release him from his contract. He basically was saying, no, Gruden's my guy. You got to go sit and spin and look elsewhere. So the Bucks then thought they had a deal in place with Bill Parcells, but Parcells was advised to back out of the deal because of all the salary cap trouble that Tampa was about to have. Oh they gosh. had horrible contracts and he was like, nah, I mean, I would go coach for you, but I'm, I can't deal with that cap. So their search was floundering. They couldn't find anybody. The Colts had immediately hired Tony Dungy days after he was fired by the Bucks. So the Bucks were sitting there two months into this without a coach <laughs> and Tony Dungy already had a shiny new office in Indy and everyone's kind of, you know, fans, commentators, everyone's kind of being like, Hey, uh, do you guys, did you guys make the right move there by can and Dungy? So I, the, the speculation is that they basically traded all of this stuff for John Gruden to quiet down the criticism, not because they necessarily thought he was worth all this, but sure. because they kind of screwed the pooch on their entire process. So, so like you said, they not only did they give up two first, they gave up two second rounders and $8 million <laughs> for <outrageous>. John Gruden. <laughs> so knock on wood if that trade is the dumbest thing you've ever heard. It gets worse, Taylor, because John Gruden, obviously, like his calling card is offense, right? Like he was yeah. a wide receivers coach at the University of Pittsburgh. Okay. He was an offensive assistant for Mike Holmgren in Green Bay. You know, he took the Eagles to shockingly mediocre offensive performances in Philly. <laughs> and he was okay in Oakland. He was fine. So we came in to fix the offense, right? Like the reputation, Tony Dungy was a defensive coach. We got to bring somebody in that's going to fix the offense. Or we just got to bring in John Gruden because we need a coach because it's been two months since we fired Tony <laughs> Dungy. So we might as well give up four draft picks and $8 million to bring this guy in. We came in to fix the offense, which actually stayed almost exactly the same. Sure. So in 2001, they finished 15th in offensive points per game, 20.3 points per game. In 2002 with John Gruden running the offense, their points per game went up from 20.3 to 21.6, but that actually ranked worse because the league as a whole was much better at offense in 2001. So they actually went from 15th in offensive points per game to 18th under John Gruden. So they actually were scoring less relative to the rest of the league than they were in 2001 under Tony Dungy and the offense that John Gruden brought in, which he still runs to this day, improved marginally in yards. It improved a little bit in yards per play, net yards per pass attempt, which is adjusted for sacks. They improved a little bit in rushing yards per attempt. They improved a little bit in scoring percentage. They had 31.5% of their drives ending in scores in 2001. In 2002, that jumped all the way up to 32.6, a 1.1% increase. But these gains were largely offset by the fact that number one, the rest of the league was also better at offense in 2002. And number two, Tampa committed 26 more penalties than they had the year before. John Gruden came in, all order vanished, chaos reigned, and penalties were being committed left and right. So the nice. offense actually wasn't any better. Yeah, and penalties are obviously something that oftentimes rightfully so is attributed to the coaching staff it's a discipline thing it's a you know your guys not being in the right place at the right time I mean that's that's clearly a failure on Gruden you know his mantra for that season that 2002 season was pound the rock so I mean, that was his you know his commitment to the running game he even went as far as he brought in a large chunk of granite into the locker room he is such a freaking goober 
And Did that I mention obviously... that he got a communications degree at the University of Dayton? That was yes. his He's yeah. a master communicator. He has a bachelor's <laughs> in communication from the University of Dayton. And that is the kind of communicative genius you would expect from somebody with a bachelor's degree in communication from the and University of Dayton. And that obviously wouldn't be his last dumb catchphrase either. I've been referencing this, but knock on wood if he's a fucking tool bag because he had that um, the the knock- yeah hard knocks hard I mean- knocks. Thank you. I was about to say knocked up. That was not it. it felt <laughs> like it was it. Uh, sure. The hard knocks where he was telling the whole team, "Knock on wood if you're with me." And everyone was kind of like, "Man, that's not the right." phrase the way he yeah, used knock I on mean, wood this was all. also around the time that it was being reported that he was having his guys watch film from like 1972 yes i forgot that, about that that phrase is from 1972 i mean yeah. like and not the good kind of film you know the chiefs the chiefs have dusted <laughs> off some old film <laughs> rose you bowl. know a rose bowl came from what 1949 or something like that yeah yep. but man when the chiefs dig up the old film it works when john gruden looks at the old film he's like i'm gonna run a four tight end set with a fullback God. And we're going to run the ball. We're going to pound the rock for two yards. And of course, so this year that he's chanting pound the rock, it's it's built by his defense. Tony Dungy and Monty Kiffin made that team what they are. They absolutely, like you mentioned, had studs all over the defense. They had journeyman Brad Johnson at quarterback who couldn't do much, but they brought the Bucks, the defense, the Tampa 2 defense that was famous, that people still call Tampa 2 coverages based on this 2002 Tampa team. Um, you know, I mean, they were, they were riding high and they go on a trip to the Super Bowl in his very first year with Tampa. Okay. So he's, he got traded from Oakland. He comes in, he doesn't do much to the offense, but the defense kicks ass a defense that he didn't make or coach. The defense improved from 17 points per game in 2001 to like 12 points per game. Oh, they were an all time. They were an all time defense. Absolutely. And Tony Dungy who got fired for that team, but absolutely was the architect behind that defense. And to Gruden's credit, I do think he's a good guy. He gave a ton of credit to Tony Dungy throughout this entire process saying that, you know, Tony built, you know, did a lot of this stuff, but they get to the Super Bowl and Gruden before the biggest game of his life is facing none other than the Oakland Raiders. I mean. So, so it's, it's gift wrapped for him in a couple ways. So unfortunately for Oakland, they've got this center Barrett Robbins. He freaks out the night before the Super Bowl, as I would assume, I'm, I'm kind of surprised this hasn't happened more than once. And maybe it has, but it wasn't really reported or whatever, but Barrett Robbins basically goes AWOL. He just leaves the team facility. Nobody knows where he is. He bounces. He doesn't answer his phone. They can't get a hold of him. Their pro bowl center completely bails. So their coach, Bill Callahan, taking over the first year from John Gruden and taking them to the Super Bowl in his first year, by the way, taking them just like John Gruden, taking them to the Super Bowl in his first year. But, Oh, I see what you mean. He took a roster that the Raiders couldn't get to the Super Bowl. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he comes in and does something that John couldn't have done. And so then he has to install a completely different game plan for the number one offense in the NFL, because their center calls all their, protections and is kind of the quarterback of the line and and he's nowhere to be found but even though that's a tough blow for the Raiders they still could have gotten by if they hadn't have been the dumbest team of all time and by that they used every one of Gruden's plays on offense from his previous years with with the Raiders they didn't change a thing he came in, Callahan came in and was like, ah, yeah, we got a good offense. We're just, we're not going to change any of the the languages. We're not going to change any of the checks. We're going to literally do the exact same thing. So I pulled a couple quotes from after the Super Bowl, and these are amazing. 
So this is right tackle Lincoln Kennedy. He said, <laughs> every level of the defense knew what we were doing. They knew what to look for when we checked versus a blitz. They knew where we were, they knew where we were going with the ball. They knew Rich's rotation, like his his read rotation. You and then uh, this is Mo Collins. RIP. You have never played a football game where 95% of the plays, the other team, they can guess what plays you're running based on scheme. But these guys, we were breaking the huddle and they were calling out our formations. <laughs> so they were basically in the huddle with them. And uh, this is defensive tackle Sam Adams. He said, I played with some of them after the fact. And they were like, we can't believe you're using the same checks and the same terminology. <laughs> we, I mean, Gruden ran practice saying he's using the same stuff that he put in. Come on, guys. How can that be? So like, they admitted it, you know, uh, it's the same off. Oh, this is Booger. We all love Booger McFarlane from his Monday night sure. football days. He said, it's the same offense that John Gruden ran when he was there. So we practiced against the same offense for a year. So if you're not going to change any of your audibles that Gruden used in Tampa, that's on you. So I, 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 I this is an unbelievable story, but I mean, on, on the one hand, you, it kind of makes sense, right? Like your players already know the terminology and, you're not going to play Tampa unless you play them in the Super Bowl. You know, like what are the odds, right? But then you have two weeks to get ready for the Super Bowl. Yeah. Like come up with some different words, come up yeah. with some different codes. I mean, at the point that you make the playoffs, you probably should at least be prepared for the possibility that you could face Tampa in the Super Bowl. You're both in the playoffs. You know, like you could at least start working on some sort of alternate code there. I, I don't know. I mean, it is, it is baffling. It's like one of the, more ridiculous scenarios to ever happen in NFL history, certainly in Super Bowl history. I mean, it just is, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. And for those that don't remember, Tampa won the game 48 21 and had three pick sixes. I mean, they I mean, were absolutely dominant from start to finish in this game. Uh, it, so in the biggest game of Gruden's life, he was completely gift wrapped the easiest Super Bowl win in NFL history because the Raiders were so incompetent that they didn't think to change any of his system before and they went the up way, against him. Getting gift wrapped the easiest win in Super Bowl history is a huge accomplishment in a world where Tom Brady exists and has won <laughs> Super Bowls. Yeah, the freaking Bucks have two Super Bowl wins, and one of them was this, Ugh. and the other one was that the two starting tackles were out the week before the Super Bowl. So sure, that's you know. uh, that's good stuff. So. Congratulations, Buccaneers, on your two championships. Fuck you. So he wins the Super Bowl. Life's great for John. It sucks for the Raiders. Their previous their previous coach just pantsed him in the Super Bowl with their own calls. And then things kind of start to uh, to spiral down for John after that. Obviously, um, he went 12-4 and four that year, but then he won seven games in 2003, five games in 2004, four games in 2006. And then finally, after it looked like you know, he was never going to get anywhere. Uh, the Bucks signed Jeff Garcia, who we all remember as a 49er and an Eagle for a little bit. He was kind of yeah. a, a journeyman guy, but uh, the Bucks picked him up. He was a mobile West Coast guy, kind of fit what Gruden likes to do on offense, which is, you know, not really throw vertical a lot. And they went back to the playoffs. They did only have a nine and seven record. This was the aforementioned um, year yeah, by, Corey. by Corey, where they had a division title with only nine wins. And my favorite part is that John Gruden said after they lost in the playoffs, he said, the future is so bright around here that I have to wear shades. And I put in my notes, cue the sunny theme music, because as everyone knows, it's not as bright as he's saying it is because in 2008, the Bucks were like, okay, dope. He's coming back. We're going to give him a contract extension through 2011. 
going into December, things looked like that was the right call. The Bucks were nine and three. They were the NFC's two seats. They were on pace to have a bye week and, you know, get everything going the way they want it. But they did have the whole month of December to go. And in oh, famous oh. John Gruden fashion, they went winless in the month of December. Oh, this is his calling card. This, this is, is, this is absolutely it. And he's done this multiple times that we have loved. So late on December, season collapse. <laughs> late season collapse on December 28th, the Bucks were eliminated from the playoffs by who else but the Oakland Raiders. Oof. They got their revenge. They might not have their rings, but they knocked him out of the playoffs in 2008. And that's as good as it gets for the Raiders. So after the collapse, the Bucks didn't even make the playoffs, and Gruden was fired by the Bucks on January 16th, 2009, about 13 months after he said, the future is so bright around here that I have to wear shades. So he now, had, yeah. Quick recap. Yeah. Quick recap of the Gruden-Bucks era. Sure. So he comes in his first year and wins the Super Bowl with a team that basically was built by Tony Dungy. Yep, off the backs of the defense that he didn't even coach. And then he doesn't the team that he had all the calls for. Yeah. Yeah, Then he doesn't go to the playoffs again for like five years. And then he manages to get back to the playoffs with a nine and seven record and gets bounced in the first round. And he gets bounced two subsequent. He never wins another playoff game again after the Super Bowl in Tampa. And then he signs a contract extension. He has his bucks at nine and three and misses the playoffs after starting nine and three. And gets fired. Yes. That's that's what happened. Just that so is the recap of the John Gruden era in Tampa. It was it was not great. And they gave up, obviously, as we discussed, a lot for him. So that I mean they did get a ring. So, you know, at the end of the day, maybe rings are all that matters. But I hope Tony Tony Dungy got a ring. Like I hope he got a oh, he, he might have. He might have ring. I, I mean he should have. So to, to kind of follow the life of, to- of John Gruden from here, obviously uh, he's a character and no one will take that away from him. He has he's, a communications degree from Dayton. He has a communications degree. So ESPN and in their infinite wisdom decided we're going to get this guy to communicate on our airwaves. So they hired him for the Monday Night Football crew. And I mean, honestly, he was in his element in the broadcast booth. Uh, sure. Everything yeah. he said was comical, whether he meant it to be comical or not. Like he is a very entertaining guy to listen to, even if it's not necessarily um, intelligent. Uh, every decision he made in the broadcast booth obviously impacted no one, which is the best way for him to make decisions. If he's making That's decisions right. and it doesn't cost anyone jobs and it doesn't cost any fan bases wins or whatever, then that's fine. So everyone was really happy with Chucky. Um, oh, he was called chucky because he looks like the doll chucky yeah chucky doll sure uh, did he he come up with that nickname for himself it was an offensive lineman that just one day it was just like dude you look like the doll from child's play you look like chucky (laughs) and it just stuck and everyone started calling him chucky because he's such a weird looking guy so you know knock on wood if he never should have gone back into coaching but he did so (laughs) So Mark Davis, uh, son of Al Davis, and after... Who also looks like a Chucky doll. All, Mark looks like a microwaved version of John Gruden, which is he the does, best tweet yeah. I've ever a seen. A microwave I mean, Chucky doll, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. It's but like, uh, So Mark comes along after Al passes away, and he's like, I got to bring back the the old Raiders. You know, like, we're sucking. We've, we've sucked ass ever since the day we lost the Super Bowl. We haven't had any more winning seasons. We haven't done anything right. I got to go back to our roots. So... He brings in John Gruden, again, who hasn't coached in 10 years, brings sure. him in 
on a 10-year, $100 million coaching deal, which might be worse than trading for him in the first place. I mean, he immediately locked him in for 10 years before he knew if the guy could even coach anymore. And it is absurd. Alert, he cannot. <laughs> it is absurd. I, I did not think about this until you sort of you know brought it to the forefront here, but it is absurd to think that John Gruden in his career has both been traded for two first and two second round picks and has been signed to a 10-year, $100 million coaching deal yes. by two separate franchises. And he's awful. I – Yeah. So the three years that have passed since 2018 when oh, he yeah. was hired uh, have not been great. He's gone 19-29 and 29 in those three years with the Raiders. It's not – Fantastic. Uh, the team has been basically a complete disaster since the day he walked through the door. They went four and 12 in that first year. They lost an ass load of games in, in horrible, awful fashion. Uh, they got kicked out of Oakland. They had to move to Vegas. He hasn't finished a season above 500 despite, you know, the complete destruction. I wanted to point this out, the complete destruction of both the chargers and the Broncos in this time, there hasn't yeah. been other than the chiefs, like the Raiders haven't had a, really hard division other than one team, but they just have not been able to capitalize on it. It's been bad. The 2019 Raiders, as we alluded to earlier, this is the, the last two years have been as classic Raiders as it gets. They started six and four and David Carr predicted that they would go on to win everything. Yeah. Went out and they finished one and five, which is almost the opposite of winning out <laughs> and missed the playoffs. And then the, so that, that one and five finish made them seven and nine. And then the 2020 Raiders were six and three. They had beaten the chiefs in arrowhead. Everyone was fired up about them. They thought this is, you know, John Gruden's Raiders are back. They completely fell on their ass. They finished two and five for the last seven games. So that's an eight and eight year. They didn't even make it above 500, even though Raider Cody was saying, oh, I'm going to see you guys in January. They didn't even make it to January. Yeah. You said that they would win 12 games. So, you know, I mean, they won uh, eight. He didn't just miss were, 12 by one or two. You were right that John Gruden was back because they again collapsed down the stretch. And John Gruden is four and 10 in the month of December. As a as a Raiders coach, the second time around, so four and bad. ten, four and so, ten. That's so bad. That's very poor. That's the year they poor. finished four and twelve, they were two and three in December. And I mean, so they're so two. Yeah, the two and seven in the next bad, two yeah. that no one was taking them seriously. You know, they're yeah. just screwing around in December. They won two games, and they've won two games in the two years since then. In December, it's crazy. That. I mean, listen, as Chiefs fans, we're all very familiar with John Gruden, coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. That we are. His badness is at the forefront of everything that we do <laughs> that has to do with the Raiders. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we, we're yeah. very, we're very aware of how bad John Gruden is now. But I want to take a walk down memory lane. We've talked about his career as a coach. We've talked about briefly his uh, stint in Monday Night Football, you know, the goofball in the booth. I want to talk to you about John Gruden, the talent evaluator, because sure. I got to say, while a lot of Raiders fans were excited about the, you know, the idea of him coming back to Oakland and then Las Vegas, even the most ardent John Gruden fans were like, are we going to give this guy personnel power? Because... <laughs> I don't think that's a very good idea. And they were right. It was a terrible idea. And it's been an absolute disaster. But I want to go through John Gruden's career as a talent evaluator. Whatever you think about him as a coach, 
obviously he's not very good. And if you disagree with that, you're wrong, but whatever you want to think about, uh, about him as a coach, I just want to, I just want to highlight how poor of a talent evaluator he is. It's astounding. So first beginning with his, his first Oakland sense. So his very first draft pick ever as an NFL coach was Charles Woodson hall of famer, one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time, the fourth overall pick in 1998, Great pick, knocked it out of the park. He never ever came close to drafting another player as good as Charles Woodson ever in his 20 years as an NFL coach and personality since that time. So beginning with Charles Woodson, who made a ton of Pro Bowls, he drafted one other Pro Bowler in 1998, a guy who made one Pro Bowl. Then in 1999, he drafted again one Pro Bowl player. In 2000, he drafted two, and they were both special teamers. He made Sebastian Janikowski the highest-drafted kicker in the modern era. There's there's been a few that have been that have gone higher, but we'll, we'll say in, in the, the 60s. common yeah. yeah we'll say in the common draft era. I mean, since the since merger, the merger. Yeah, yeah, since the merger. So since the merger, Sebastian Janikowski, 17th overall. He spent the 17th overall pick on a kicker, and. This was one of his better first round picks, yeah. it has to be said, because his first round picks are all terrible. Now, Sebastian Jankowski only made one Pro Bowl in his career. So I mean Which is know, insane. It's not it's not great, but his greatest draft pick in two thousand, I mean, probably like his second best draft pick ever after Charles Woodson, was a punter, Shane Leckler, who mm-hmm. made seven Pro Bowls, six all pro teams. John Gruden in his last year in o- Oakland, two thousand one draft, zero Pro Bowl. So not a great track record in his first sit in o- Oakland as a talent evaluator, with the exception of his first draft pick, Charles Woodson, in Tampa. Now, it should be said, obviously, Tampa gave up a lot of draft capital to acquire John Gruden. So, you yeah. know, the first couple of years he's there, he didn't have a whole lot to work with. But his first year in Tampa, he drafted eight players starting when, in th- the third round. So he didn't have a first or a second round pick in his limited defense. But of the eight players that he drafted, four of them never played a single snap in an NFL. <laughs> so we're talking about eight rookies that he drafted. Four of them did not make it to game one of their first season in the NFL. Not they even checked in in a blowout. They couldn't even get on the field to take a single snap in the NFL. Okay. I, I mean, listen, even for a sec, a seventh round pick, you'd hope that guy gets like a cup of coffee, right? Yeah. Bo like, Keys has at least played. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you know, they at least right. get in there. Right. And his first pick, his first pick in Tampa, not Charles Woodson. Okay. It was the 86th overall pick, but still a top 100 pick. He took a wide receiver named Marquise Walker. And if you look on pro football reference, yeah. If you look on pro football reference for the 19 or excuse me, for the 2002 draft and you look at Tampa's page, you'll see Marquise Walker was their first pick. You can't click on his name because he doesn't have a pro football reference page because he never played in the NFL. He was one of the four players that, that never made it. Okay. And he was a third round pick. He was a third round pick. They just lit it on fire. The 86 overall pick. He's so obscure that when you Google Marquise Walker NFL, you get Marquise Walker, an undrafted free agent from 1996 who had a better NFL career than this Marquise Walker, who was drafted six years later in the third round of the NFL draft. Oh, no. Now, I mentioned four of these guys never even made it to the NFL. Two of them 
made it to the NFL, but one of them played in one game oh. and the other one played in four games. One might be worse. One is like they <laughs> yeah. gave him a shot and they're like, right. never so mind. Bad. He's so bad Ugh. that he never played in an NFL game again. He oh. got on the field and they said, no, Pulled no, we parachute. can't do it. Never again. We're, we're cutting you immediately after the game. Don't even get back on the bus. Mm. So of this, the eight players you drafted in his first draft in Tampa, six of them played four or fewer NFL games. Not games, great. Not years. Not, not 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 years. Games. Games. Single games. Oh. Uh, six of those players combined for five total NFL games is one way to look at that. So in Tampa in 2002, zero pro, pro bowlers drafted. In 2003, zero pro bowlers drafted. In 2004, oh, no. zero. In oh, 2005, no. surely not zero. Zero. Oh. In 2006, he got one. Woo. In 2007, zero. And in 2008, his last year in Tampa before he was canned, he did get two, including probably actually his second best. I said it was Shane Leckler. He probably his second best draft pick ever. Also cornerback, Akib Tlaib, former Jayhawk. Yeah, Rock Chalk, baby. We'll shout him out. Rock Chalk, Akib Tlaib, a good player. Certainly much, much more famous for his stint in New England and Denver than he was for uh, Tampa Bay. He only played for John Gruden for a brief time before John Gruden was shown at the door. But boy, that is a that's a bad track record. That, that is dire. It gets worse though, Taylor, because you know while John Gruden was working for ESPN, he continued to share his thoughts about players, and in some ways, this is even more illuminating because obviously, you know, I mean, when you're a coach, like you're gonna you're gonna give the coach speak answers, right? But he yeah. was given a platform to give his opinions about players, and you know, he just was allowed to opine freely. And that turned out to be a very dangerous thing because let me tell you, some of the opinions that he came up with are ludicrous. <laughs> and we could have spent literally like three podcasts just going through John Gruden takes for ESPN and roasting those takes. But I just want to pick one shining jewel from all the John Gruden takes. And that's on the 2017 quarterback class, which as you know, featured a, uh, future Hall of Famer and all-time GOAT, Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. The 10th overall pick. Uh, featured currently disgraced, but but very good performing when on the field quarterback, Deshaun Watson. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, three or four-year NFL starter and former Pro Bowler, Mitchell Trubisky. Sure. Second overall pick. Mitch threw six touchdowns in one game. He did against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> That's right. Might as well have been the John Gruden Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But – John Gruden had uh, a different apple of his eye in the 2017 NFL draft. And that was Nathan Peterman. Oh no. You may remember Nathan Peterman's NFL debut against the San Diego slash Los Angeles chargers. I don't remember. Well, it would have been in 20. Yeah, it would have been LA. It would have been the LA yeah. chargers, right? Or maybe yeah. it was their last year in San Diego. Sure. You, you may recall that the Buffalo bills benched Tyrod Taylor to start Nathan Peterman, despite being in playoff contention nominally. And you may recall that Nathan Peterman had one of the worst NFL games of all time. Literally probably the worst. So in Nathan Peterman's first NFL start, Taylor, against the Los Angeles Chargers, he went six of 14, so completed 45% of his passes (laughs) for 66 yards (laughs) with five interceptions. Oh, no and a fumble 
including a pick six and a fumble return. So Nathan Peterman in his first NFL start got beat by the four and six previously three and six Los Angeles chargers 54 to 24. And he threw five picks on 14 pass attempts. Yikes. He threw five picks before halftime in that game. Yes, he did. And he wasn't playing after halftime because Tyrod Taylor came back <laughs> into the game because the Bills like thought, oh, wait, maybe, oh, shit. <laughs> maybe Tyrod Taylor is our best quarterback. <laughs> I just want to read to you what John Gruden wrote. He wrote an article. And let's be honest, he definitely dictated this because <laughs> I, I don't think John Gruden can read or write. I assume he, you'll dictate yours to me. Yes, that will be fine. John Gruden dictated an article to ESPN about Nathan Peterman. And I just want to read some of these quotes. Okay. Peterman is ready to walk in and be a contributor from day one. He just looks like a pro quarterback coming out of the huddle, running an offense with different formations, shifting, motioning, different patterns that other colleges don't run. Peterman will recognize route combinations and associate formations. It's like what he's worst at. Yeah, I know. And you can tell he dictated this because nobody writes like this, especially not John Gruden. It's like, Come on. This was probably dictated and also heavily edited. He's like, man, <laughs> we'll come out here. He's going to recognize those routes. Boom. Combinations. He's, he's going to run spider two Y banana. <laughs> he is real sharp. He is in the channel. I think of success. He's in the channel. <laughs> what? He's in the channel. I think of success. I think he's going to be a real good pro quarterback. Oh, no. So, he went on to opine that Nathan Peterman was the most pro-ready quarterback of the 2017 draft class. More pro-ready than Deshaun Watson, who came in in relief of Tom Savage in like the second game of the season in 2017 and lit the league on fire before he blew out his knee. Uh, more pro-ready than Patrick Mahomes, who granted didn't start a game until week 17 of his first year. But if he had probably would have done better than throwing five interceptions in 14 pass attempts, just Mm. guessing. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, all he did the next year when he came in to play quarterback full-time was throw 50 touchdowns his (laughs) first season as the starter. So I don't know. Maybe he was a little bit more pro ready. Uh, Mitchell Trubisky, you know, Mitchell Trubisky was fine. He was fine. He was okay. Uh, You know, even Deshaun Kaiser, who was terrible, was not as bad as Nathan Peterman. He's literally like, literally might be one of the worst quarterbacks of all time. John Gruden said that he was the most pro ready quarterback in the 2017 draft class. But that is is brutal. It is brutal, but that's all a prelude to Oakland part two slash Las Vegas. I just want to go through these draft classes real quick. These are fresh in everybody's mind, but I think it's worth underscoring calling out just how terrible these draft classes are. It's astounding. So starting with the numbers, the figures, four draft classes here since he's returned to Oakland slash Las Vegas. They've had seven first-round picks because they (laughs) traded away Khalil Mack and Amari Cooper. They've had 16 picks in the top 100 in four draft classes, okay? They should be the best team in the league. Yeah, normally you get three. They should have had like 12. They've had 16 top 100 picks, okay? 32 total players drafted in the past four years. They have gone to a combined one Pro Bowl. No. One Pro Bowl appearance 
by these 32 combined players, seven first round picks. Now, granted, one of those first round picks was this year, but six first round picks in the past three years before that, one total Pro Bowl appearance. No. And it's by Josh Jacobs, a running back who's <laughs> not even that good. So <laughs> let's go through these class by class. Okay. 2018, they took Colton Miller at the 15th overall pick. He was the second tackle off the board behind Mike McGlinchey, who's a pretty good right tackle for the 49ers. Mm-hmm. But this was not a great tackle class. Okay. The best tackle from this class, and frankly, one of the best players drafted since 2018 was the only pro bowler, the only pro bowl tackle in this class, Orlando Brown Jr. Woo! But Isaiah Wynn went uh, with the 23rd pick, eight picks behind Colton Miller. He was a consensus better player pre-draft, and he has been a better player post-draft for the Patriots, despite some injuries. Here are some of the other players that went immediately after Colton Miller, okay? Tremaine Edmonds, inside linebacker for the Bills, at the 16th pick. He's been a very good player. Derwin James, safety for the Chargers, went with the 17th overall pick. He's been an amazing player when he's healthy, which he never is, but still great player when he's on the field. Jair Alexander, who's established himself as a premier cornerback, cornerback for the Packers. He went with the 18th pick, three picks later. DJ Moore, wide receiver for the Panthers. Very good wide receiver. Uh, 24th overall pick. Calvin Ridley, wide receiver for the Falcons. Amazing player. 26th overall pick. 11 picks after Colton Miller was taken at 15th. Lamar Jackson, uh, quarterback for the Ravens, uh, 32nd overall pick. Hello. At the top of round two, Nick Chubb. You may have heard of him. Very good running back for the Browns. Darius Leonard, one of the best draft picks of the last three or four years. Cortland Sutton, wide receiver for the Broncos. Jesse Bates, a great safety for the Bengals. All these players taken after Colton Miller. This draft class had nine total players in it. This was this was three years ago. This was in 2018. And the only guys from this nine player draft class that are still on the Raiders are Colton Miller and their third rounder, Brandon Parker. That's oh, it. No. The other seven guys are no longer Raiders. They've all been cut before they did not their rookie survive. years were out. Yeah, they did not survive their entire rookie deals with the Raiders. Nice. Six of the nine, six, seven of the nine did not survive their rookie contracts with the Raiders. So twenty. The other two are Colt Miller and Brandon Parker. It's not like the I, other two were slam dunks. Oh, I, I know, I, I know. But Colt Miller might be John Gruden's best draft pick since he came back to the league. So in 2019, the Raiders had three first round picks because of the Amari Cooper and the Khalil Mack trades. They got one from the Bears. They got one from the Cowboys, and they got off to a terrible start by taking Cleveland Farrell with the fourth, fourth overall pick. This is the second edge rusher off the board behind Nick Bosa. It was like if you go back and you watch the draft coverage from all these John Gruden drafts. Yeah. Like the reaction, usually when they announce the Raiders players, like, wow, (laughs) I did not expect that. And that was exactly the reaction when Cleveland Farrell was taken with the fourth overall pick. So with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we've got a couple of years to digest this. This turned out to be a pretty bad edge class overall. The next two guys taken off the board were Brian Burns by the Panthers and Montez Sweat who was with the football team, but they've both been better than Cleveland Farrell, who was taken with the fourth overall pick. Those guys were both taken in the twenties. And as it turns out, Cleveland Farrell would have the second fewest sacks of any player taken in the top 10. Okay. 6.5 career sacks. That's behind Quentin Williams, who is a defensive tackle. Yeah. Uh, Devin white. Who's a middle linebacker. Uh, Josh Allen. Who's kind of like a hybrid linebacker pass rusher. He has more sacks. Then Cleveland Farrell, edge two in this draft class. Ed Oliver, another defensive tackle. The only guy taken in the top 10 in this draft class who has fewer sacks than Cleveland Farrell are the offensive players. (laughs) Sure. 
And Devin Bush, who was taken 10th overall, he's an inside linebacker, and he has two sacks. I mean, he's only four and a half sacks behind Cleveland Farrell. The only pro bowler that he's ever drafted since he came back to Oakland slash Las Vegas was Josh Jacobs, who he took at the 24th overall pick in this draft. So first round running back, he did make one pro bowl. And then he took at the 27th overall pick, Jonathan Abram, who was literally, literally mm-hmm. the worst safety in the NFL last Dude's year. trash. Dude, he's literally the worst. I mean, he, he literally is the worst safety in the NFL. He was taken with the 27th overall pick in 2019. So 2020, we'll breeze through it really quick. The Raiders, again, had multiple first-round picks. They had their second Khalil Mack pick. And the first guy they took at 12th overall with their own draft pick was Henry Ruggs, who I own on my dynasty team, so I don't want to be smirched the guy. But, man, he has been – Not good. It's been one season, but an incredible bust. So this was the wide receiver one in this draft class. He was the first wide receiver off the board, right? So Henry Ruggs in his rookie year, 452 yards and two touchdowns in 13 games. I just want to go through some of the guys that were taken after him in an astonishingly good wide receiver class from 2020. Jerry Judy taken with the 15th overall pick. Uh, His quarterback was Drew Locke. Still had 856 yards and three touchdowns. Okay, he almost doubled Henry Ruggs' yardage total. C.D. Lamb, taken with the 17th overall pick. He played like two games with Dak Prescott, and then his quarterback was like Andy Dalton and that goofball who started one game, who I can't remember now, who will never oh, play yeah. in the NFL again. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, but yeah, you don't I do. remember his name either because he played one game. Yeah, how he, could I? It was in primetime on Sunday Night Football, whatever it was. Literally like one of the worst primetime games ever. CeeDee Lamb was playing with those goofballs. He still racked up 935 yards and five touchdowns. Ben DiNucci. Ben DiNucci. That's exactly who it is. Nice. Pour one out for Ben DiNucci. Vinucci. Jalen Rager, who's on your dynasty team. Yes. Another, another big old bust. 21st overall pick. Terrible pick. I mean, he was he was a an absolute bust last year. He still managed to put up 396 yards and one touchdown which is just behind Henry Ruggs in 11 games. Like he basically was on pace for the exact same stats as Henry Ruggs. Justin Jefferson, maybe you heard of him, 22nd overall pick. He put up 1,400 yards and seven touchdowns as a rookie. Brandon Ayuk with the 25th pick, 748 yards and five touchdowns in 12 games. He played fewer games than Henry Ruggs, and he still put up 300 more yards and three more touchdowns. T. Higgins. Second round, first pick of the second round, 908 yards, six touchdowns. Michael Pittman Jr., second pick of the second round. Still not very good, but still 503 yards and a touchdown in 13 games. Chase Claypool, 17th pick of the second round, 873 yards and nine touchdowns. On my dynasty team. Even Denzel Mims, who played nine games for the Adam Gase New York Jets and was drafted in the late second round, he still got 357 yards in nine games. He was on pace for more yards than Henry Ruggs playing for the Adam Gase Jets and only playing half the year with Sam Darnold as quarterback. But incredibly, Taylor, Henry Ruggs isn't even the biggest bust of this first round for the Raiders. Oh, no. Because despite the fact that Henry Ruggs has been like the 15th best wide receiver from this draft class, despite being taken as a wide receiver one, the Raiders took Damon Arnett with the 19th overall pick which was considered a massive reach at the time. And he's lived down to that. Like there were people that did not have Damon Arnett as a top 100 player. Yeah. And the Raiders took him at the 19th overall pick. He's been terrible. 
And then there's Lynn Bowden Jr., who we've talked about before, but his story is worth reliving because it just so perfectly encapsulates the madness of the John Gruden Raider era. He was drafted with a third round pick, 80th overall. And before the season even started in what has become a theme for this whole segment, he never even made it to one game for the Raiders. They traded him and a 2021 six round pick which was later traded to the Bills, became Marquez Stevenson, who's actually a pretty interesting wide receiver prospect. They traded Bowden and a 2021-6 to the Dolphins for a 2021 fourth-round pick. It ended up being 121 overall. So the Raiders turned pick 60 in the 2020 draft and pick 203 in the 2021 draft into pick 121 in 2021. They got no games from their third-round pick in 2020 and then turned him into a fourth round pick the following year. That is just gross mismanagement in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's as bad as it gets. I mean, clearly. And then some of that's Mayock, but obviously um, who was hired by John Gruden. I mean, you know, exactly. Like there are two peas in a pod there. So we also had some just kind of miscellaneous stats. Oh, we got miscellaneous stats out the ass. We (laughs) go all night. We, We do. I'll just hit a couple of them. And we'll wrap it up. So I wanted to point out that Gruden is 28th in games coached, but he is climbed up to 19th in games lost. <laughs> and he is 96th in winning percentage all time at 508. So he I'm is surprised just, he's still above 500. He's just a smidge over 500, but he, uh, yeah, 96th in winning percentage. Out he probably of, won't be after this year. Yeah, probably not. Out of 39 NFL coaches who have coached over 200 games, John Gruden's winning percentage among those 39 ranks 36th, only ahead of this guy named Weeb Eubank. Who Weeb Eubank. Weeb Eubank has it's an awesome name. I loved it. Weeb. <laughs> Weeb. Weeb Eubank. He coached in the 60s and he was terrible. Uh Lou Saban, who is Nick Saban's second cousin. He all he coached in the 70s and he has a worse. Yeah, he coached the uh the infamous Buffalo Bills team that we talked about. That's correct. And running Nor- Bills. And Norv Turner who obviously uh, a lot of us in the AFC West are very familiar with. So those are the three coaches that have a worse winning percentage uh, than Gruden that have coached over 200 games. So Gruden had, is only incredible. It is incredible. Gruden has five playoff uh, teams, five teams that made the playoffs in his over 200 games. And those three that I just mentioned, Eubank, Saban and Turner are the only coaches to coach 200 games and take fewer than five to the playoffs. They all took uh. four teams to the playoffs. So these four, uh. those three and Gruden are right at the bottom of the list. Um, I wanted to side-by-side compare Gruden with Marvin Lewis, who was the Bengals coach for 16 years. So they were sure. very similar in their total games. Marvin Lewis had more playoff appearances, seven to five. Now, while Gruden did have a ring, Marvin Lewis went 0 and seven in the playoffs, but he took seven teams to the playoffs. He had more wins, 131 to 122, and a better winning percentage, 518 to 508, than John Gruden. Huh. And, and I'll wrap with this. You'll do your last point, then we'll be out of yeah. here. There are four coaches to coach exactly 240 games in their NFL careers. Those four coaches are Bill Cower and Mike Tomlin Coach. of the Coaches. Pittsburgh Steelers, Sean Payton of the New Orleans oh, Saints, and our guy, John Gruden. So just to recap, all at 240 games wins. Mike Tomlin, 157. Sean Payton, 155. Bill Cower, 149. 
John Gruden, 122. Not good. Not good. Uh And that obviously means that he leads the pack in losses by 28 over everyone else. Yikes. And playoff appearances, Bill Cowher, 10. Sean Payton, 9. Mike Tomlin, 9. John Gruden, 5. Boy, uh, that is not great, Taylor. And you mentioned I had one more nugget to close this out with that I discovered completely by accident. I was on Pro Football Reference conducting research, finding a good stat to kind of wrap things up with, and I I think I nailed it. So let me hit you with this. John Gruden, 223 career challenges. He's thrown that challenge flag 223 times in 240 career games. Seems like a lot. He's throwing the flag a lot. Yeah. Now, how many times has he been successful? Well, how, how often should it succeed? How often should it work out? When John Gruden is throwing the flag, uh, not very often, because he has only been successful 83 times <laughs> on 223 career oh, challenges, no. which means 140 times he has not succeeded in getting the call overturned. Now, coaches, they have to burn a timeout. Yeah. So coaches don't throw the flag unless they're pretty confident. I mean, it should be at least 50, 50. You'd think yeah, it's right? not like baseball where you just say, yeah, just go look at it. Like it's, yeah, it costs it, you. It, it costs you a timeout to challenge a play. He has a 37% success rate in challenging plays. And to give you a frame of reference for that, Andy Reed, who I would consider to be fine at challenging plays. He's okay. Yeah. yeah, he's, yeah. he's not exceptional. He's fine. He has challenged 126 times in his career. Now he's coached 130 more games than mm-hmm. John Gruden and he has thrown a hundred fewer flags <laughs> despite coaching 130 more games. <laughs> and Andy, despite throwing the flag a hundred fewer times has only had 23 fewer successes. He's been successful on 60 of his 126 career challenges. So he's 60 and 66 in challenges. John Gruden is 83 and 140. That is a 37% rate for John Gruden. That is a 47% rate for our man, Andy Reid. And so I guess the conclusion here, Taylor, is that John Gruden sucks and he never should have gotten an offense coordinator gig before his fellow Green Bay Packers coach, Andy Reid. And he will never be as good as Andy Reid. And he stinks. <laughs>